Uh, listen, pull out your notes uh, from the bulletin this morning. You can kind of follow along that way uh, if you're a note taker. Open up your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1. That's where we'll be this morning. So religious experiences are pretty wild, right? Um, I don't know if you ever have a, a lull in a conversation with a group of people, but if you ever want to liven things up and there's kind of a lull, just toss that one out. Just say, hey, anyone have any religious experiences lately? And just see what starts to come back. Uh, people start to talk about some things, and, uh, and it can get really wild very, very quickly. It really livens things up. If you want to go a little darker, uh, just with a start, you know, kind of talk about spiritual matters, you could toss this one out. Hey, anyone ever think about death? You know, that's a weird one. That kind of puts a lull in the conversation. But it's, it's steering it toward the supernatural. It's steering it toward things we don't quite understand and that there's, that there's a mystery to. Uh, here's what's interesting about, uh, about religious experiences, is that people from all walks of life, every culture, have them. I love to talk to people about their religious experiences and just let them share with me um, what, what that means to them and how they, how they would answer that. Um, I had one guy I was talking with one time, and he was telling me all about the Mayan calendar system. And, uh, and he, was, he had studied this and really looked into it, and he was a really bright guy, and he'd, he'd, you know, he was in these different business things. And I said, so you're putting your hope in, in this Mayan calendar thing. And he goes, well, you know, I don't know if there's really any hope to it, but, but I believe in it, yeah. And, uh, and, and really, the more that he talked, um, I mean, really, the crazier it got to a point where he was laughing. I mean, he was kind of like, well, this part gets really silly. You know, he was just saying some stuff. And I talked to other people, and, and a person was telling me... Um, they said, yeah, you know, uh, we, we look to really to our dead ancestors uh, for religious experiences. And, and we had this happen one time, and my great-grandma told me this, and, and, and I this or that. Uh, other people that have just said, you know, it's, it's kind of a feeling that I have. I had this feeling one time, and, and I love to ask the follow-up question, you know, to some of those things. I mean, just tell me more about that. It really is interesting, and I'm genuinely interested in people to hear um, what it is that they've had. Uh, other people will just say, you know, it's just, it's just something I take on faith, and, and, uh, and I haven't really had any experience, but, but this is what I believe in. And one of the questions I like to press in on people is, where's the hope in, in what you have? And some people just are very blunt about it. There is no hope. There's not, there's not necessarily hope in it. And so I said, well, you believe in it then just because you're absolutely convinced this is true. And they go, well, not really. I'm not thoroughly convinced it's true, and... And it's not that hopeful, and and yet and yet some people don't pursue it any further than that. Um, if you're if you're not having the religious experience, but you're hearing someone talk about it, um, it's a little bit like watching people dance with the music muted. Okay, I don't know if you've ever done that. I don't know that I have, but if you imagine that, what you would see is a lot of sincerity. You'd see a lot of movement, but from off the dance floor with no music, it's just kind of weird. You're like, wow, I see lots of activity going on, but I'm not experiencing it. I'm not engaged in it. And if you've ever tried to share your religious experience with someone, you start sounding like the crazy one. Have you ever been there? I have. The more I've talked, I'm like, now this part gets really crazy, I know, but let me tell you some more about it. Here's, here's my first experience with it, or my first thought about it. I think because of the evil that has been done in the name of spirituality and in the name of God and in the name of religious experience, I think that I and a lot of other people tend to distrust them. So here, here are three faces that some of you may know. This is, this is Jim Jones, the wacky uh, Hale-Bopp comet guy, 
and then David Koresh. These are three people who led cults. You know what they all three started with? Actually, I think only two of them started with. Two of them started preaching the Bible. They started somewhere in the Bible, and they ended up in Jonestown in Guyana. They ended up in Waco, Waco Texas, uh, doing the whole compound thing with the ATF coming in. These were, these were things going on um, in, in our lifetime. And then the hale Bop comic guy, I don't know where he came from, but he's just crazy. Um, here's the problem is that pastors are really lumped in with the whole religious experience thing. When I tell people I'm a pastor, um, there's a lot of times they go, oh, and there's just a, there's a total shift in the comfort level of what just happened. Um, and sometimes people really engage with that. Sometimes people really pull back from that. And sometimes it's just their own experience with that. Now, here's, here's what happens in the news, is that you have pastors that talk about religious experience all the time. And one of the struggles that uh, Proverbs says that where there's a lot of speech, there's sure to be sin. And so when you speak as part of your living, part of what you're called to do is to speak about God and to speak about religious experience, is you can over-talk stuff. And then sometimes what happens is, is you talk and talk and talk, and, and no one who stands, hear me, no one who stands up here is coming up here because they're perfect. Everyone who comes up and stands in front of you, everyone who lectures at a seminar, everyone who's famous on TV, everyone who writes a book is a sinner saved by grace. They had to, they had to sing this song with passion that we just sang. Man, my sins are white as snow. Not from way back when, but from yesterday. Praise be to God for that. But then when a pastor falls, doesn't the media love to jump on that? Here's three that have happened in my lifetime. So all of a sudden, we think religious experience, evil, wacky people that do crazy stuff, and fools follow them. Uh, then we think religious experience, oh, those wackos on TV, people who say one thing but live a totally different life uh, off, off the stage somewhere. And so all of a sudden, religious experience starts to tend to be distrusted. Here's what's interesting in all this. It sets up, it sets up the following. Um, someone saying, well, that's good for you. You've had that religious experience, that's good for you. Or, or maybe something this, you know, to each his own. Like, that's, that's good for you, that's, that's your deal, this will be my deal over here. And it starts to beg some questions, at least in my mind. Here's one of them. Is one person's religious experience better than another person's, or are they all equal? Kind of a follow-up question to that is, is there a right religious experience? Are we supposed to be seeking after religious experiences? All of this is by way of introduction. Here's what we're going to do today. We are going to listen. We're going to hear from a guy who had perhaps one of the most outlandish religious experiences ever. It's a guy by the name of Paul. You may have heard of him. He wrote a few books in the Bible. He had a crazy religious experience, and it has everything to do with us today. It has everything to do with even us sitting in this building today because we're studying one of his letters. It's a letter he wrote to some churches in the region of Galatia, and we're going to study it. And we're not the only church in the world studying it today. I guarantee you there's churches around the world who are studying in this passage in Galatians today, thousands of years later uh, after he wrote it. Here's Paul's religious experience in a nutshell if you're new to the program. Okay, Here it was. Paul's a guy who was persecuting the church, violently opposing Christianity. In the first century, A.D. He's, he's on his way basically to his next hit, which happens to be in the city of Damascus, and he's blinded by the light, literally. Okay, So that's his, that's his story. Hey, have you ever had a religious experience? Yeah. What happened? 
Well, I was blinded by the light. Oh, okay, really? Hey, Bob, get over here. You've got to hear this story, this nut job, right? And tell us more, buddy, right? But that's his experience. He's blinded by, by this great light. He asks who it is. The light says it's Jesus, the one you're, you're persecuting. He's face-to-face with the risen Jesus Christ. He's then, he then basically t- makes a U-turn in life. He stops persecuting Christ and starts to worship Christ. He receives a message and a mission to preach the way for sinners to get to God, and it's through this Jesus Christ. Totally different than what he had been preaching before, which was really just a works religion. Do these rituals, do these right things, and then you'll be made right with God. So that's his story. Now here's why it it behooves us, or how, how how it ties into us, how it affects us, is that for every event in history... Unless you were there and you were an eyewitness, you are dependent on other people to provide for you the details, right? I mean, even what happened last week across town. If you weren't there, what are you doing? You're leaning on news reports. You're leaning on people who were there. You're cross-checking and fact-checking and wondering, is that right? From a couple of weeks ago, remember this is an everyday activity? Every single day you are making assessments as to whether what someone is telling you is true or not, and you're doing it right now. Right? That's the deal. We always do this. So some people just immediately dismiss it and say, well, I can't believe it happened so long ago and I wasn't there. Really? Really? You go through your entire life making those judgments all the time. So here we are dependent on Paul for, uh, for information. All right, so just by way of review, remember that Paul jumps right to the point. Last week, Ben covered it. He jumps right to to the crux of the matter with this letter. Why? Because he loves the Galatian people, right? Because there's a sense of urgency to it. The Galatian church is very rapidly veering off course. These guys called the Judaizers are coming in and they're taking the simple truth that Christ died for your sin and that's what saves you and you don't add anything to it and they were adding to it. Thereby enslaving people. So Galatians in general, watch for this the entire study, is a vigorous attack on the lies and it's a forceful defense of the truth. All right, we're going to pick it up in verse 10. Uh, follow along. I'm going to read just verse 10 for now. We're going to cover the rest of the chapter this morning, so we've got a lot of work to do. Here we go. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would be a servant. I would not be a servant of Christ. Let me pause there for a second. Remember what we're doing here is trying to hear like on one part of the phone conversation and you're trying to catch the gist of what's going on. We only have one part of this, but what you can gather is that Paul has evidently been accused of being a man pleaser, right? And so he's answering his critics with this. He's, he's standing up and writing to them saying, let me show you that I'm not being that. Um, now, because Paul is a preacher, he's tempted to be popular rather than to be faithful. Everyone who's, who, everyone who's a preacher, in fact, really everyone who's a Christian, is tempted in this way. Do I want to be popular? Do I want to not make waves? Do I want to go with the crowd? Do I want uniformity? Or do I want to be faithful to what Jesus has called me to do? Every Christian faces this all the time. But preachers face a particularly strong pressure for that. Do I be faithful to the call and to the truth and to the message and to what needs to be said? Or do I tell people what what really gets me good feedback or what they like to hear? So so Paul's Paul's being accused, obviously, of, of the latter that he's tickling ears, basically. What he's going to do is he's going to spend a considerable, a considerable amount of time talking about himself here in this, in this text. 
And the reason he's doing it is because he wants to show them, it's actually foundational for them to get this, that the way that I receive my mission, the way that I receive my message is different than the normal standard thing. And the reason is, is because it came right from God. It came directly from God. I want you to think about how traditional training works, okay? Some of you are politic followers. You love to watch politics and follow that. So if you're in that realm, you can kind of think that way. If you're into the legal scene, you're wondering who the next judge is going to be and all of that, you might think in the legal scene, uh, sports can kind of work too, but it loses something there. Um, but think about who the rising stars are in politics. You can start to guess who's, who's making a run for the White House early on, right? And people love to write about this and talk about this. People start to, to figure out who's going to be appointed to what big government high-profile position just by some common threads, okay? Here's what people start to look at. Well, look, he's got, he's got the pedigree. He's got the degree from the right college. He interned at the right place. He's been mentored by this person, right? And now he's got some experience going in this, and he headed that, and he wrote this bill, and he's, he's on his way. He's on his path. That's traditional training. That's how you raise up in systems in our world. Is that, you, is that you do it uh, slowly over time. You gain insight and wisdom through experience and teaching. Here's what Paul's going to show. Not me. When it comes to Christianity, I didn't have any of that. It wasn't something that I arrived at after long reason and insight. It was given to me uh, in, in a moment. Look at verse 11 and 12. Verse 11 and 12 are basically his thesis, his, his key point for this, for this chapter that he's going to build on. Verse 11 says this, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So what you can see here is the, the regular training path at work. He's, he's, he's talking about, uh, about some things. Uh, I'm sorry, that's going to that's gonna be in just a second. What he just said, is a, is, a, is a massive truth claim. This is not man's teaching. I'm not regurgitating to you something that I received from my trainers. I received this directly from God. This is a religious experience, is it not? I mean, this is someone telling, this is someone walking up to you tomorrow and saying, hey, I had a revelation. Really, what does that mean? And they say, I heard from God. Really? Yeah. And then you would, you would begin to assess whether you believe them or not. If you're taking notes, you can write down, uh, you can follow along with this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna just show you what Paul shows you from the text. He's gonna give us basically three snapshots of his life, and it works out really, really the way that I was taught to, to share a Christian testimony. Which to some degree is, here's my life before conversion, here's how I believed, here's how I came to believe, and here's what my life has been like since I've, I've placed my trust in Christ, okay? So, if you're, if you're following along, uh, the first one is this, Paul the persecutor, okay? Look at verse 13. Verse 13 says this, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many among my own age, uh, among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. All right, so here's where you see kind of that regular path of training. I was advancing in Judaism. I was kind of the young and up-and-coming rabbi, right? I was rabbi of the year. I was, I was really accelerating. I was head of my class. Uh, if, if you were to kind of follow this in historical context, you can, you can just jot this down and read this later, but write down Acts chapter 22 
Acts chapter 26 and Acts chapter 9. These are where it kind of provides some, some historical details surrounding it. Um, in verse, in, in Acts 8.3, it gives this great little summary of Paul's life at this point. It says that he was making havoc in the church. He was making life miserable for Christians. You know what? That was his job. Remember he opened the letter two weeks ago with, I'm an apostle from Jesus Christ, not from men. And he should know. Because before, he was an apostle from men. He was sent on a mission. He was a sent one from men. Go destroy this little uprising called the way. Shut it down. But now he's an apostle. He's a sent one. He's on mission directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. When Paul mentions his past life, it's, it's with this view that he's marveling that God would save him. Here's one of the errors that I've seen in, in testimonies. I've, I've spent a lot of my life working with youth and, and helping youth articulate what's going on. Even with baptism, to sit there and try to talk with someone about it, you want to make, make sure that you're drawing out and, and kind of finding where things are at. And I've, I've had kids share this great story with me, this great testimony, and then we'll share it in front of the church. And we'll kind of rehearse it, just in the sense of, you know, because sometimes when you get up here and there's lights and all of you are looking at you, you know, the story's like, woo, just all over the place. And sometimes I've, I've worked with someone on their testimony, and, um, and I've heard them share it, and they share the before Christ part so much and with such vigor that actually the star of the show in the testimony is that life of sin before Christ. And they're, they're going into great detail about all their sin, and, and it's like, wait, wait, wait a minute, that's, that's not really why we're sharing our past detail. It's not to glorify this sinful, fleshly life and all these horrendous things you've done. Paul could have gone into great detail, could he not, of the horrendous things he'd done. And frankly, in front of a crowd, it would have wowed you. We would have been like, wow, wow, this guy's something kind of special. He's done really dirty things. He's really violent. Wow, you were there for the stoning of Stephen? Wow, can I get your autograph? He could have gone that route. But instead, you get the sense that he's sharing his past with this view, saying, isn't it a marvel that God would save even me? Who's the hero of the story? God's the hero of the story. So here he is sharing just, just a little bit about his past. Now, now Paul's extreme version of, of being a Pharisee would have actually made him fairly antagonistic toward Gentiles, just in general. Okay? Now, he happens to be um, a hyper-accelerated person in this school of thought. So probably all the more. And I love God's sense of humor. I mean, it's just like God to say this. Hmm, I need an apostle to the Gentiles. Who should I pick? This guy. The guy that already hates Gentiles. I'll make him the one that's going to go out and love on Gentiles and tell them the way of God. Right? That's beautiful. So you wonder how did Paul, or Saul of Tarsus, become Paul the Apostle? He goes from a persecutor of the church to preacher in the church. Um, think about the Christian evangelism program. God can use all kinds of different ways. It should be that the local church was evangelizing and got a hold of Paul, right? But here's the evangelism program for Paul. Read it in the book of Acts. They were running from him, right? Hard to get the gospel to someone where it's like, ah! here he comes and you just bolt because he runs you know think about friendship evangelism with paul right or saul uh saul yeah, kind of nervous uh, when he goes sailing this weekend you know um saul's like yeah sure bring all your christian friends right 
I mean, it, it just wouldn't work that way. So, so God had this totally different plan of how he was going to save it. When you read Acts 9 and you see Paul's religious experience, here's what you're crystal clear on. Who saved Paul? God did. God did it. I mean, from top to bottom, it was God's idea, it was God's doing, and it was a miracle that, that, that took place that day. God dreamt it up. Was Paul thinking about becoming a Christian? Was he pursuing it? Was he in an apologetics class, starting to join a fellowship group? None of that. Quite the opposite, right? He was destroying those things. And God said, you're going to get saved. It happened suddenly. It happened without warning. And it wasn't something Paul did, but that was done for him. Hear this. That's the gospel. That's our story. I mean, I don't even care if you did join a church, join a community group, start to ask some questions. It's always God's doing. It's God initiating in that. It's God moving in that. It's God giving you desires toward that. So it's a picture of the gospel that, that it's something that God does for us with no help from us. That's something to be hugely thankful for. I don't know if you feel this, but when I hear that, I mean, it is like just, it's a re-lifting of a burden off my shoulders. That's right. Part of why I come to church on Sundays is go, that's right. It's nothing that I did to get this in the first place. Therefore, there's nothing that I did this week that's going to remove it, that's going to pull it away. All right, so that's Paul before conversion. Here's, here's Paul at conversion. It's Paul the believer. In your notes, I put it this way. It's life colliding with Jesus. And some of you would describe your conversion in, in some ways like that. I say colliding because, I mean, Paul's like in a head-on collision. It's a violent pop in the face where he's going one way in life and Jesus turns him around the other way in a pretty extravagant way. Follow with me in Galatians 1.15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. I want you to hear the language change between verse 15 and verse 16. Okay? Um, it's, it's a picture of what the Christian life looks like. He moves from talking about himself. Look at all the eyes. He says, I persecuted. I tried to destroy. I was advancing. That was in verse 13 and 14. Uh, so zealous was I. And then there are many dramatic buts in the Bible. And yes, I did just say that. But this is one of them. Verse 15. But when he. And that's this, that's this shift in Paul's story. And then all of a sudden, look at what goes on in this pair of verses. God set me apart. God called me by his grace. God was p- pleased to reveal his son to me. Here's our story. Verses 13 and 14, it's Paul saying, I did this. I was trying to do that. I was on a mission here. Me, me, me. But God. And then it's God did this. God did that. God invaded. God healed. God rescued. God opened my eyes. Friends, this is the picture of a Christian. It moves from all about us to all about him. The raging fanatic who once only factored in his own plans and abilities and view of things, was literally stopped dead in his tracks on the way to Damascus. 
The gospel is about the initiative and grace of God, and Paul highlights it in his testimony. Let me show you a couple things. If you, if you write in your Bible, uh, write, circle or underline these parts of it. It's awesome. Uh, it says, it says here in verse 15, God set me apart before I was born. This is a, this is a massive idea. Means that Paul, even from the time before he was born, was, was being, was being drawn by God to himself. Paul sees God's hand of grace was on him even while he was in the midst of utter evil. When you look at Paul's life, you think, well, maybe God really can make beautiful things out of the dirt in my life. Anyone who comes to me and says, well, well, Dave, you've lived this kind of life, and so you don't really know what I've been through. You don't know what I've done. I can point to Paul and say, you know what? Um, I've never killed a man. I've never sat by and watched someone get stoned to death and given hearty approval. I haven't done some of the things that, that Paul did, but, but Paul was saved out of that. And if Paul, why not you? Think about this. Paul's extreme opposition to the gospel, Paul's extreme uh, wickedness, actually in the long run, when you kind of pull back and view the big lens, doesn't it actually lend uh, even even more support to his testimony. It actually shows off kind of a depth of God's grace that wouldn't be there had he not done that. Now, God never tempts anyone to evil. God never draws anyone to sin. So he doesn't do that. But he's able to take those things and actually hold someone up and make him a trophy of God's grace. So here he is, this wicked man who once persecuted the church that Jesus started and God's holding him up as a trophy of grace to have all the rest of us say, man, maybe there's hope for me. Well, he goes on to say this, that God called me by his grace. This is truly the utterly undeserved love and favor of God. Paul wasn't deserving of it. Paul wasn't asking for it. Uh, it was really quite the opposite. But God initiated with Paul. But God gave this raging toddler a time out. He just kind of said, you're going to be blind for three days. It's literally like just taking a raging lunatic toddler and saying, calm yourself, right? And then he just sets him on the path to love. And after he he's, comes, comes to see again, he gets baptized and follows the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, in this passage, look at this. But God was pleased to reveal. It is the initiative of God always to open eyes. When I pray for people that I love dearly uh, who are not saved, and actually when I pray for people who I don't know and ask that God would teach me to love them dearly who are not saved, I pray along these lines. God, would you open their eyes? God, would you draw their heart? God, would you so hound them in their sin that they are miserable in it, that they find the death in it before it kills them? Would you draw them? Would you, if it takes what it takes with Paul, would you blind them first so that they can see you? God, would you take these raging toddlers and give them timeouts? God, would you? God, would you? God, would you? Because I'm utterly convinced it's God who saves and not us. So that's how, that's how we should be praying for the lost. So that's Paul at conversion. How about Paul the preacher? Here, here is now Paul after conversion as an apostle. Now, when I was a kid, we got to go to church uh, not once in the morning, uh, but for, for at least two services, 
And then we always got a bonus one at night, which I didn't think was such a hot idea most of the time. Uh, we got to go back to church, right? And so when we go back to church, once in a great while, there was a missionary that would roll through town, and they would start in with a missionary slideshow. Now, this always seemed like a great idea to me. I was always quite thrilled because it wasn't some guy like me up there talking at them for a lot of time, which I had already heard a bunch of in the morning. So this was something different. But about halfway through the slideshow, many of them, uh, I was wishing for someone talking at me. It just got long and boring. And these were like slides, you know, those kind of things, right? So we're watching it, and a lot of times those kind of drug on and, and got kind of old. Here's what's going to happen. In the Bible, I, I, I see now, it's biblical. It's biblical that you have a little missionary slideshow. Paul's actually going to do it, and yet he doesn't have the cutting technology of that little cardboard thing with some film in it and light that shoots through it to put on a screen. He's going to do it with words. But, but he's going to do it for a very specific reason. He's going to say, here are some of my missionary travels. Here's where I went and what I did. Here's my travel blog, right? And the reason I'm telling you this is because it supports what I said in verses 11 and 12. I did not get this from any other source. I was not trained from the good old boys at the Jerusalem Church Club. I got this from Jesus Christ. Okay, So here it is um, in verses 16 to 23. We'll kind, of, we'll kind of close out the chapter with this. As a newly converted Jesus follower... God gives Paul this mission to say, you're going to spread the gospel primarily to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish people. We're going to take this uh, outside of the Jews. And logic would say, go as a uh, newly converted person who's going to be a bigwig in the church, go and introduce yourself to the other bigwigs in the church and kind of meet and swap stories and share how you received revelation and these kinds of things. But God leads Paul away from Jerusalem. It's actually illogical if you follow how do you want to gain influence and start to spread things. Um, and so we're, we're going to see that. Just kind of watch for that as I read. Verse, verse 16. I've got to pick it up verse 15, uh, 15. Sorry. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his great grace was pleased to re- reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you, before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ." They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. So a quick little shot of the gospel. Jesus comes on the scene and he's preaching. He's He's not making void the Old Testament, but he's ushering in this whole new era of grace, right? And, and, and he begins to show God's plan in super hyper-focused detail. All that was predicted about a, mess, a Messiah, a Savior would come. He comes and he lives that and fulfills that. Then he takes the gospel and he hands it to, to 12 men, right? One of whom would betray him and then regret it. Eleven of whom went on to begin to spread the gospel. 
the death of Stephen, you can read about that in the book of Acts, is actually this turning point for the spread of gospel because at that point, things got really violent. And what happened with the Jews is they did this, right? Like stepping on an anthill. They just scattered. They ran for their lives, literally. You know what they did? They took the gospel with them. So all of a sudden now the gospel's going into these different things. Jews would gather up over in these far regions together and say, we need to be together, we need to have a synagogue, we need to meet together and be the people of God together. And so the gospel began to spread to these different places. Acts 8 records that Philip takes it to the Samaritans. Acts 10 records that Peter begins to open the doors to the Gentiles, which is another funny thing because he had a real hard time with that, but he heard directly from God to open that door, so he did. But now Paul, in mass, is going to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul makes a big deal about not being in contact with other Jewish believers precisely because it confirms what he's telling us in verses 11 to 12. I didn't get this from anyone else. I didn't consult with people. I didn't get trained in them. I'm not the up-and-coming Jewish rabbi that I was in the old system. I received this by revelation directly from God. Here's his travel blog. We'll cover this pretty quickly. Um, after an initial time in Damascus, um, there's some Jewish leaders that plot his death. So this is where he escapes in a basket through the city wall. Remember that in the book of Acts? Uh, he now goes off to Arabia probably for about three years. It's kind of interesting that the disciples had Jesus for three years, and then God leads Paul basically out into the desert to meet with Jesus, essentially for three years. In verse 17 also, we see that he then returns to Damascus. Again, kind of illogical. It's still risky because the people who thought he was a traitor then are still there and still think it's a bad idea that he's a traitor. So it's a, it's a risky venture to go back there, but he does. Paul had a new master and he's following directions from him. Verses 18 and 20 show that he finally does go to Jerusalem to visit Peter. You can read in Acts 9, he actually has a hard time getting into the church. They don't, they don't trust him. There's not just the right hand of fellowship. You know, they didn't welcome him in, into the, to the potluck right away, right? You don't do that with a guy who's been killing your, your brethren and chasing them out of synagogues and whatnot. If he had been the golden boy of the apostles, if he had been raised up, none of this would have been true. This is why Paul, he's just showing us this logical progression. Do you see these events? Do you see the conduct of people? This shows that, that I was still mistrusted and, and, and have received this. And then verses 21 to 23, he returns home to Tarsus. And Acts 9 kind of fills in the why there. His life was in danger in Jerusalem, just like it was in Damascus. All right, so all this travel blog is to answer this question. Why should you believe me? Paul. Why should you believe in Paul? And he's building this case. He's saying, this is why. I heard from the risen Jesus Christ. I am a capital A apostle. All right, we're going to wrap up with this. Some of you are sitting here saying, this is all fantastic. Uh, we've, we've heard you know, Paul's travel blog. You're starting to lose me a little bit. Let me, let me try to connect the dots for you. Let me try to, try to bring it to, to, why, to why this matters. First of all, Paul's gospel matters. Paul's gospel matters because Paul's gospel is really not Paul's at all. He doesn't own it. It's Jesus' gospel. So we must be careful what we do with Paul's gospel. It is the very truth of God and not the invention of any man. The truth will set you free. There's two different kinds of pride that can kind of enslave us. One is the pride of self-righteousness. 
Self-righteousness is what the Judaizers were coming in and wanting to add to things. Sure, sure Christ did this, but you've got to do these things as well. And then keep that well, and then you'll be in good with God. That's enslavement. Much of this letter is Paul fighting against that, saying don't, don't be enslaved to that. But there's another kind of slavery that, that is also pride. It's called self-loathing. Self-loathing is this kind of pride. It's the pride that focuses on how bad you are, how bad the things you are have done, how God could never love you. We sing about God's love, but he couldn't love me. Do you see that those are both prides? Self-righteousness and self-loathing are just kind of two sides of pride's coin. Both of those are before conversion life. It's me, 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 I, 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 but God. And the life of the Christian is focusing on all that God has done. Here's some modern-day Judaizers that are kind of around us, and, and the things that Paul's fighting are, are in our own sphere as well. There's people called critical scholars. These are people with a lot of degrees on their wall, and they write a lot of papers and whatnot. And many critical scholars would say this, yeah, we, we're fine with the writings of Jesus and all that, but we're not fine with Paul. Paul veers off from, Paul's, from Jesus' simple gospel Paul would answer it this way. In 2 Thessalonians 3, you can just read the whole chapter, Paul essentially puts his own teaching on the same level as Jesus. Because what he's commanding, he's a messenger. He's saying, I got this directly from the Lord. So when you're obeying what I'm writing to you, you're obeying Jesus Christ. So, no, I'm not veering away from that. I talk to many people. This is a really popular one with just kind of just everyday people that I talk to and bump into. It's called smorgasbord theology. I don't know if that's a technical term. That's what I call it. It means this. You know, the Bible is filled with a lot of good stuff, but there's also a lot of stuff in there I just don't like and, and I don't follow. In fact, um, several people I've had deep conversations with say, you know, I, I really trust Jesus and the disciples and, and the Gospels, but Paul I can do without. I don't trust anything that Paul says. And to that I would say, um, Paul and Jesus and the disciples are unified. And that you can't take and separate those things out. Peter referred to Paul's letter as scripture. So to even say that is, is illogical kind of within, within the, the, the text of scripture. So Paul's gospel matters and your history matters. Look, look at verse 24. Look at how the, 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 the chapter ends. And they glorified God because of me. So Paul ends his kind of little testimony section. They glorified God because of me. Here's what's beautiful about, about Paul's life. We are all Paul. We were all enemies of the cross. Even if you weren't violently opposed to the way of Christianity, to the way of Jesus... You were an enemy of Christ. You were an enemy of someone else doing something for you to save yourself. That's what being born into sin is all about. So we were just like Paul. We just weren't as convicted as Paul. Paul lived out his convictions a little bit better than we did. Paul didn't live a good enough life, and neither have you. But God did. And that's the beauty of it. Like Paul, God is able to take the wicked person that you and I used to be and use it for good. Isn't this a powerful thought? that people would glorify God because of you? That's taking your junk. The stuff that you go, God, why did you let this happen? God, why was I such a raging lunatic in this part of my life? Why was I so blinded? Why was I such an idiot? God can say, I'm going to take that. I'm going to hold you up and say, you know what? You're going to be 
You're going to be lover of the Gentiles. How's that for you? You're going to be a giant shining trophy of just how deep my grace is in someone's life. And because of you, others around you are actually going to draw hope from that and say, wow, that guy can get saved. Maybe there's hope for me as well. When sharing your story, the power isn't in how you tell it or the fanfare or lack of fanfare in how you came to believe. Paul's got a pretty good story, right? I mean, he rolls into town, sidles up to the bar, right, and goes, hey, guys, I got a cool story, right? Some of you are like, you went to a bar? We'll talk about that in community groups. Point is this. He has a pretty dramatic religious experience. Some of you say, you know what, mine's just not that exciting. The power of God to save and the power of your story and the power even of people believing and praising God because of you is not in your history. It's not in how you tell the story. The power is in the gospel. Just write this down. Romans 1.16 says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and then to the Gentile. That's the spread of the gospel that I just laid out for you. I want you to consider writing out your testimony. I want you, if you have never done this before, to consider writing out your testimony in the style that Paul laid it out. Here's what my life was like before conversion. Maybe you weren't an unconverted Jewish rabbi. Okay, that's Paul's story. What were you? What were you headed towards? What were you pursuing? Here's how I came to believe. And here's what God has done for me since. Here's what my life is like since I've become a follower of Jesus Christ. I'd encourage you to write two versions. One would be like a 30 to 45 second version that you could just, that you could just peel off pretty quickly with someone. Many encounters we have in life are pretty short. Then I want you to do a second one that would maybe be about five minutes long. That's where someone engages and really wants to hear and go a little bit deeper with what you're talking about. Let me invite the band up right now. Um, in community groups this week, part of what we get to do with community groups is we get to rehearse the great things God has done in our life. We get to just talk about them. And one of the things I would encourage us as community groups to do is this. Begin to learn to have spiritual conversations amongst family, amongst other Christians. I used to love in youth group to tell someone, hey, you're in line at the movies and a guy asks you this question, begin to share Christ with them. And then we would just kind of pick apart how he's doing with that. And it's kind of role playing. It's just kind of get people used to it. Because you start down a road, you're like, I don't know if I can get out of that one. That's starting to sound really weird, and it's not that weird. How do I articulate this? How do I get this out? And so we're going to do some of that. Um, Kids, come on in. We've got a baptism in just a second, so the kids are going to join us. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing, and then uh, we'll move on. God, thanks so much for this morning. We praise you for the work that you have, the work that you are doing, God. For those in this room that this morning may say, man, I'm Paul. I'm the one who hasn't been converted yet. I haven't trusted, I haven't believed. God, I pray this morning that they wouldn't leave this building before they're entirely sure that they're in you, that they're saved. We thank you for the simplicity, God, that we are called on uh, just to, to believe in you, to confess you as Christ.